0: Stories of innovation and success from the vibrant communities of rural Nova Scotia. This is Ignited. Hey there, welcome to season two of Ignited the podcast, where we celebrate innovation and rural success. I'm Wade Cleveland. I work for a rural innovation hub called Ignite, a place that brings startups and industry, youth and community together, with the goal of making an impact on rural communities everywhere. Think innovation, not location. We give a home to entrepreneurs and businesses. We host events, programs, and projects to help you learn the fundamentals of starting a business, how to use technology to grow your business, and where to find resources to help you transition your business. Now, Ignite was created by Doug Jones, and on the very first episode of the first season, we had Doug come in and tell the Ignite story. So for the first episode of our second season, we have Doug back to tell the story of his entrepreneurial journey and to talk a little bit about the mindset of a successful entrepreneur. Doug, thanks for chatting. No problem. It's become tradition now. This is the start of the second season. So from now on, whenever we start a season, we should have you on
1: sounds good. All right. Well, <laughs> I have no problem talking. So
0: <laughs> Let's talk about your journey. The last time we got together, we talked about Ignite itself. But you have a fascinating entrepreneurial journey. I know you started as a marketer. So maybe if you could start there and kind of we'll move forward from there.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess you could describe me as a marketer. I, I look back at how I was growing up and kind of the entrepreneurial traits that I had uh, growing up in, the, in a small community and, and kind of just being a hustler, trying to, trying to do things that could create some money for me. And, and I used to do a lot of that growing up. And I think uh, when I went through university, I, everybody always told me, oh, well, you've got to become a, an accountant or you've got to you've got to do these things, and and as a young person, you're influenced by the people around you. So, so I did, <laughs> and I'm so not an accountant, but uh, <laughs> but at the time at St Mary's University, I I started taking notice of some of the entrepreneurial stuff, and really it it excited me. But I ended up really concentrating on marketing because. Uh, you know i i'm a pretty creative guy and I, I marketing seemed to get me excited so so i concentrated on that and then uh, when i graduated and and did my first little run as an accountant uh, i soon realized that that was not the career path for me and really got into that whole marketing uh, aspect and what it led to was you know i i, I built a business around my marketing skills and Really, when I look at marketing, it's really about communication. And everybody who knows me knows I always talk about the value of communication and building networks and building relationships, and and that's ninety percent of what marketing is. Mm-hmm. And so I built uh, I, I built some pretty good marketing um, initiatives and companies, and and I think that's actually where you and I got connected in the in the yeah, first place. It is. Um, what i did from there was realize that certain parts of marketing got me excited other parts didn't and the parts that got me excited about marketing were based on my upbringing as an, you know as an athlete and uh, really involved in sports my whole life was around sports and i made a shift to really concentrate on sports and essentially fired all my customers except <laughs> for my <laughs> my sports clients and uh and what it did was unlock potential. I was excited to go to work. I was excited to do the things I was doing and, and really concentrated on, on, on growing my business that way. And what it led me to was just meeting interesting people in the sports world and developing connection there. You know, it really launched my, my business as it sits today. Um, that early stage marketing work I did really led me down that path. And really what it, what it was, was I got connected to individuals that I, I developed a really good relationship with and started being introduced in different circles.
0: So how do you do that, though?
1: Well, uh, the first thing I would say is put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You know, if you don't feel like you belong somewhere, go anyways. <laughs> and, uh, and really not pretending to be something that you're not. Um, being authentic and, and really being curious, being curious about the people that you're being introduced to. I just felt that I, I was always cognizant that I needed to do a good job. I needed, you know, if I got a contract with Hockey Canada as, a, as an example, I wanted to make sure I did the best possible job I could do. and I didn't go in saying I'm the global expert on hockey what I was able to do is understand my client, understand their needs and put them first. So when I started doing that and started getting a bit of a reputation when it came to sports, like when it came to hosting events or, or doing marketing work and stuff, it started to put me in situations where I was getting introduced to some influential people. I had a... I had an interesting connection to the Toronto Blue Jays through this this work, but I uh, I knew a couple of the guys who played on the World Series teams back in '92 and '93, and they were not doing a whole lot. They were kind of just going through life. They were retired. They were getting their pensions or whatever. But they wanted to stay active and they wanted to give back. and And I'm always passionate about coaching and and especially when it comes to youth, like giving them opportunities. So I started putting together camps with my friends at the Toronto Blue Jays, and we started getting kids out. And we started hosting those actually in small communities. And Yarmouth and New Glasgow were two of the places that I started those camps in. And I brought in you know Kelly Gruber and Dwayne Ward and Lloyd Mosby and Bill Lee and all these guys I knew. I was just having fun i I wanted to be on the baseball field I, you know these guys wanted to participate. I loved giving back to kids, so we started those and they ended up growing like crazy. And we ended up running them across the country and and it became a job and <laughs> which wasn't what I intended to do with that. I just it was fun, but uh, what I ended up doing with that is the Toronto Blue Jays got very excited about about that and and wanted to do more and more and I kind of just uh set it up in a way that they could now do it uh, so they ended up becoming the Honda Super Camps across the country and are still running to this day they just uh they take took my model uh and just ran with it which was fantastic mm-hmm. um i guess through that experience, it got me connected. You know, when you when you do something with a major brand like the Toronto Blue Jays, when you're having discussions with other groups and you say, "Oh, I've I've done some work with the Toronto Blue Jays and these athletes and stuff," all of a sudden you got instant credibility. And what it led to was me doing some work with some some different groups out of New York, um, uh, actually out of East Rutherford, uh, where the New York Giants play the uh, the group that I was working with started asking me to do similar activities. So they asked me if I would help coordinate all the marketing around the Phil Sims quarterback camps. Right. And then they asked me about doing marketing promotion for a racehorse called Big Brown. And <laughs> Big Brown was going for the Triple Crown back, back at that point. And uh, I absolutely knew nothing about horse racing. But they trusted me and they wanted me to, to be involved and I, I said yes and I learned as much as I could about horse racing. Those types of things started platforming me to do other work and they started introducing me to other players and they represented a whole suite of ex-NFL players and and uh, different people in the industry. You know, from there, it's kind of snowballed. They, uh, they brought me down to... Super Bowl in Miami in 2007, you know, I got, I started getting introduced to all these major executives from different companies, you know, introduced to Easton Sporting Goods, Louisville Slugger, Rawlings, uh, you know, the list goes on, um, Wilson Sporting Goods and others. So Started to take that same approach. You you be curious, ask some good questions. You know, learn as much as you can about their businesses and develop a, a bit of a rapport, um, with these folks. And and one of the guys I got introduced to uh, down there is a guy named Mitchell Modell, and he he owned uh, he still owns uh, Modell Sporting Goods in the U.S. And back then they were a huge company. And uh, Mitch and I. Hit it off pretty well, and he he really connected me with everybody in the sporting goods world, and and really um, invite started inviting me to key events like the 50th year of the Gold Glove at, in Times Square, you know, and me walking in there, and there's Derek Jeter, and there's Willie Mays, and guys like this, and I'm just Doug Jones, <laughs> you know, yeah, and and kind of amazed by the people I was around and realizing pretty quickly that these are normal people. They were just really, really good at one thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but got to know a lot of these players and, and uh, presidents and vice presidents and executives with these companies. It really, it gave me an open door to start at least dialogue you know, about where their challenges are, and I started getting asked to do work for these companies and i started doing some work with wilson sporting goods Uh, i did some work with uh, pro performance sports skills out of uh, san diego Uh, and did some work with louisville slugger um, as well and a little bit with rawlings and and just started started developing that network and really just i was excited to do it i you know it was building my business but at one point I was at a key meeting in Louisville and um, the guys on the team down there um, started asking me about new products and they were hungry for new innovative products coming into the space. And this was quite a few years ago now, but they, they were asking if I knew of any products and I've been thinking about products for quite a while, my own products. And I said, well, I have some ideas. And they said, well, Can you show us? And I I said, yeah, I'll come back in a couple of weeks. (laughs) And flew back to Nova Scotia and sat in my workshop and started putting these ideas together. There were three or four ideas that I was really keen on. A couple were very basic uh, to start with. And then one was uh, I developed with a friend of mine, Blair. um, We developed this equipment drying system. And boy, it was pretty ugly it worked but it was pretty ugly but it was based on trying to dry equipment without mold forming and it was really from my hockey background and and my I had really old equipment because I'm an old guy but uh, the old equipment used to get really soggy and and it was just bacteria central so this system would move air through the equipment to to try and dry it without heating it up because we didn't want to increase mold count. So I built this thing out of PVC and fans and just an ugly piece of equipment. But I'm a very good storyteller. So I went down to uh, San Diego to Skills, and, uh, and I showed them this contraption I made, and I walked them through it, why this piece of equipment was going to change the world sort of thing. And they really liked it, and they they uh, signed an agreement with us, and it was a licensing agreement, so I didn't have to manufacture. They did all the manufacturing. It turned out to be a great-looking piece of equipment, and, and that was my first time doing something like this, but I was excited about it, thinking, oh, I'm just going to make all kinds of money. But what it takes is a licensing agreement pays you a percentage of wholesale sales, and... Uh, and what I soon realized was I'm not going to get rich off of one product. So I went back and started doing this this other stuff. So Louisville was one of the companies that was interested in in some stuff. So I, I designed a few different things and went down, uh, met with them, and they got excited about a couple of the product ideas that I had, and the and, uh, same thing. What I did was I prototyped them with basic, materials. I didn't spend a whole lot of money on this stuff, but I, I made a minimal viable product. I made something that worked that demonstrated what I was hoping to do, improve how kids played baseball as an example. So I got a couple of products in market with them, some very basic low-cost items, but the problem with low-cost items is you have to sell so many of them to make any money at all. But it was my foot in the door and they were branded with a major brand, Louisville Slugger at at this point in time. And I'm thinking, well, I've got my foot in the door. So I went to work. I, I was coaching baseball at the time and I had a lot of kids around me. I also had my network of professional athletes that I worked with. So I started asking questions. How did you train? What's the most important aspect of training? How do you do it? And I listened and I took voracious notes <laughs> on everything. And one of the products I came up with was really based on my laziness as a dad because my son was a really good baseball player. And uh, every night after supper, he'd say, Dad, let's go down in the basement the middle of the winter. Let's go down in the basement and hit baseballs. And I'd sit on a bucket and I'd toss him balls and he'd hit them into the net. And they never wanted to stop. So three, 400 balls. And he would be getting madder by the minute because I couldn't toss a ball consistently to him so that he could he could just work on a swing, not work on trying to catch up with the, the ball. Right. So that stuck with me. And I started taking pieces of pipe, bending them, and trying to come up with a system that didn't cost a lot, but allowed him to feed his own balls like to himself so he could train and I could sit back and coach him. What we ended up coming up with is this portable system that he can load nine baseballs, has a little timer that drops a baseball down, gives him a perfect toss every time. And he loaded it up and this thing was throwing him perfect toss. And he was hitting on his own and I was sitting back, still on my bucket, but I wasn't tossing anything, but I was saying, this is great because now I can actually interact with him and make some corrections, and I'm not worried about my consistency. And when I knew I was on something was I came home one day from work, and I hear him hitting down the basement all by himself, but he's loading this machine up and dropping balls to himself and, and hitting away. And uh, he was excited to do it. So I took it out to the field, and I got about 30 other kids, and they were just lined up using this thing. The next week, I called my friends at Wilson Sporting Goods, and I said, I got something to show you. And I went down, and I showed it to him. And the vice president of Wilson, Pat Ryan, said, I love this thing. Can I have this one? And he took it home for his kids. Mm-hmm. And and the next week, he sends me a picture of his kids using this. And this is in downtown Chicago. <laughs> you know, in the small backyard, these kids are hitting baseballs. And uh, he got excited about it. They, they licensed that one as well under the Louisville brand because Wilson, at this point, now owned Louisville Slugger. That's gone on to be one of the best-selling uh, soft-toss machines in the world. And it's being sold everywhere. If you look at Amazon and Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods and Sport Checks and all this, you can get it everywhere. And that's exciting to me because I walk in there, and I purposely put a picture of my son on the box. I helped him design the box, and there's my son on the the Louisville Slugger soft toss box. Uh, We can walk into a Dick's Sporting Goods in downtown Cincinnati and see those boxes, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me. And amazing for my son too, because he thinks he's a star now because <laughs> he's on these boxes. But that's kind of how it's how my my story evolved and it continues to evolve because I'm still developing new products. And, you know, I've got my other companies, Snap Innovations, and and these I'm always interested in, in new product. Licensing is kind of what I'm known for simply because I didn't want to be a manufacturer. I wanted to get my products to market as quickly as possible with a brand that instantly added credibility to the product. So that's why I went down the licensing route. Not to say that I'm not interested in, in manufacturing because Snap, my other company, is is certainly a, a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not as much fun. There's a lot more stress when it comes to <laughs> manufacturing than it is for for, for this type of innovation. So I'm really concentrating on, you know, what my next product designs are going to be, or how I can help other kids become better athletes or whatever. So, you know, concentrating on different sports now, you know, branching off into football and hockey and, and sports like this and, and dusting off some of my old designs that have been sitting in my, in my workshop for a little while that, uh, I didn't, pitch yet, but uh, I think, you know, those are coming.
0: We'll be right back with Doug Jones in just a moment. But in the meantime, I wanted to let you know that if you're an entrepreneur, you may want to consider becoming an Ignite resident. Residency at Ignite will give you the resources, mentorship, and space you need to grow your startup or idea. You'll become part of an incredible support network, a community that's dedicated to seeing you succeed. But don't just take my word for it. Book a tour of Ignite and see what we have to offer you. Go to IgniteAtlantic.com. When you put together the Soft Toss machine, how long did it take you to put that thing together so that it worked right?
1: Um... Not that long in the big scheme of things. You know, with fine-tuning and everything, I worked on it for probably two months. I had my first prototype in one day, but it wasn't consistent, and I didn't have the motor, and I didn't know what it was going to exactly be. But I had a picture of what this thing would look like. But then I said, well, I can't carry around this massive thing all one piece of metal. So I, I wanted my son to be able to pack it in a bag, go to the field himself. Mm-hmm. or go to his friend's place, or take it on the road for a baseball game or whatever. So I, I made little adjustments, but I made adjustments based on customer feedback. Right. So I talked to kids. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, that's innovation Yeah. in its purest form,
0: because you had a problem, and you wanted to solve that problem in some way, shape, or form. So you yep. started thinking about how to do that. Yeah. And so for anybody who's listening who's thinking okay how can I do this the key is finding where those pain points are where those problems are and trying to fix that problem right?
1: right right and pay attention to the world like pay attention to you know in my case how kids train and what's holding kids back from achieving that next level like how do you how do you get them a step further you don't have to change the world but you just have to give people that added thing. So, and I think what holds a lot of people back, I guess, from inventing and doing things is there's a bunch of fear that goes into entrepreneurship in general. When you're developing new innovative ideas, there's fear of failure, number one, but there's fear of criticism. (laughs) There's also fear of success. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs I've worked with, there is that fear of success. well, well, what if I get successful? Because there's a lot of stress if you've achieved some success to keep that momentum going. So, you know, in the last bunch of years, I've really paid attention to my own set of fears, because people always say to me, oh, you're doing so well, and you're doing all these things. And entrepreneurs have this, this mind that's going all the time. And it's often telling you negative things. <laughs> it's telling you, "Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you live in a small town. Oh, it'll never work here. You can't do those things." And can't, can't, can't. So I've trained myself to stop listening to those little voices. I sound like I'm a little bit of a, a nut, but <laughs> but <clears throat> that comes from being a goalie in hockey. I was a little crazy back then too, but when I approach things now, I I approach things without barriers. And I think that's a key to, to building any company, but building an innovation-driven company in a rural place. People have this perception is that you can't do that here, but that's not. I actually think there's a lot more opportunities because you're in these rural places. How Be- so? Because I have things like a workshop, and I have friends who can build stuff, mm-hmm. and I have, <laughs> I have friends that can fix stuff. And if I'm in a city, I'm in downtown Toronto in an apartment, and I want to develop a soft-toss system, I'm going to have to go to the University of Toronto's engineering school. What's successful for me is that I can put my hands on something and I can build it. So one of the designs I have is, is called a Power Grip by Louisville Slugger. And it's a thing that slips over the thumb of baseball players to to help with their back grip and uh, makes them a little quicker to the ball and a little bit more power and reduces the sting. Well, how I made that was I had a router. I had a block of wood. I didn't have a 3D printer at the time. So I drew out this design, used my router to create a mold. And then I Googled, how do I make rubber? (laughs) And then I went to the hardware store and I bought a tube of silicone and I bought some um, cornstarch and I mixed them all together. I smashed them into this, uh, into this mold and really pressed it down, got that done. And then I took a heat gun, heated it, and it turned the rubber. And then I had my prototype. Right. Cost me about six bucks. <laughs> and now if you watch Major League Baseball, you're seeing a whole bunch of major leaguers wearing this thing on their, mm-hmm. on their hands. It doesn't have to be rocket science. It's very basic. But I always like to put my hands on it. I have to be the one who creates it, Uh, at least the minimum viable product. Uh, I can hand it off to an engineer after that point. But I don't want to waste my money on over-engineering early. Right. Do the hard work. like Put it together with popsicle sticks and bubble gum if you have to. But build something and then take it to the next level. But you gotta prove that you can number one build it, and that a customer is gonna use it. And if you can't do those two things, why would you go to an engineering? Yeah, because you're not going anywhere. You're not. Yeah, you need to do some of that validation first. Mm -hmm. And and I think I can do that a lot in a rural place because I have more space. I have more breathing room. Yeah. I, I guarantee you, in these little communities, there's nobody else developing sporting goods products that's competing head to head with me. Literally, the town <laughs> or the area is your laboratory. It's my lab. I can go out to a, a ball field that's completely empty. I don't have to rent the space or anything like this. I can call friends of mine and say, hey, you've got two kids that play baseball. Can you bring them out to the field? I want them to test something. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing to do when you're in cities everything costs. Right. So there's a lot of efficiencies that I can get away with here that I couldn't if, if I was in a major center. And, and I think that's exciting. And, and I'm always talking about building something from nothing. Everything, every, everything I've done started with nothing, including myself. <laughs> you know, I had humble, humble beginnings. Right. And you can dictate how you develop products or how do you develop as an entrepreneur or whatever, you can learn to deal with the negative mindset. You can learn to deal with negativity around you. Most people around me know that they can't tell me I can't do something. Right. Because what am I going to say to them if if somebody said, if you came in to the office this morning and said, Doug, I don't think you can do that here. What do you think my re- response is going to be? Because... Anybody who said that to me in the past, I love going back to them after the fact and saying, hey, I thought you'd like to try out my soft toss system. You know, <laughs> or here's, a, here's a, a glove insert I created, or here's the X-ball, or here's the equipment drying system or whatever. And I get some satisfaction in that because I'm building something where something didn't exist before. That, to me, is what drives me most of the time. Like, I wish... I had more of that growing up. I wish I was exposed to more people who had that mindset. I developed it pretty much on my own. Like, (laughs) I got tired of people saying, oh, I had that idea 10 years ago, and they're seeing it on the store store shelves. Well, why didn't you take action?
0: Yeah, do something about it.
1: Yeah, because, you know, I always say that ideas by themselves are not that valuable. Mm -hmm. Ideas married with action... That's where all the value's created. So if you take action with your ideas, you'll be successful. You'll either fail quick or you'll develop something really great. But don't have ideas that you don't have action associated with because then you're going to 10 years down the road saying, uh, that Wade Cleveland, he, he took my idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you can call it whatever you want, but if you don't take action, it's a big glorified procrastination you know, you're not doing anything with it. Somebody's going to take that idea. Well, if you
0: have an idea or you do something, anything, and you do it, Mm -hmm. okay, you either succeed at it or you fail at it. Yeah. Sometimes those failures are as valuable as the successes.
1: Failure's great. i failed way more than I ever succeeded. And I think my sports background and my involvement in in different uh, athletic endeavors, what that does is teach you... For the most part, it teaches you resiliency, but it also teaches you how to deal with failure. That's why I love baseball so much. Training teaches you what not to do. Right. So the more you train, it's not about perfection necessarily, in sports especially. Like uh, When you train, it's really... Training your body for repetition. You get used to doing the same motions all the time. That's hockey, that's baseball, that's tennis, that's whatever sport. It teaches you to be consistent all the time. But the minute you change the algorithm, you change the circumstance, that's where that mental side of the game comes in. So I think, you know, you can deal with uh, being consistent and having your body trained to do those things. But as soon as you throw a wrench into the mix, what are you going to do then? And that's what entrepreneurship is. You can go to school and learn all about the business principles. But until you become an entrepreneur and start dealing with getting punched in the face, you don't know how you're going to react. And that's why the mental health aspect of being an entrepreneur is so important that you have to be able to deal with the failure. You have to be able to deal with the negative self-talk. You have to be able to deal with balance and all those things. Because as an entrepreneur, you're getting punched in the face every day Mm -hmm. in some way.
0: And you're putting yourself out there so somebody else can punch you in the face every day.
1: We as a society take some sort of weird pleasure in celebrating failure. And we don't take the same distinct pleasure in celebrating people's successes. And I think we have to flip-flop that. We have to celebrate successes. Failures are going to happen. It's what you do after that that's important. Like, how do you get back up? How do you stand back up? How do you push through? Because success is on the other side of that. If you can push through this failure, you're going to succeed. Yeah. But what most people do is they hit a roadblock and they quit. Now, imagine Wayne Gretzky. So he goes into the WHA as an 18-year-old can't even have a drink, and you're amongst all these men in this crazy hockey league, and you have to perform. Do you think he's not under a lot of pressure there? you think he's not getting punched in the face every time he goes into a corner or whatever? So it's how you deal with that. He's not a big guy, so what he had to do was concentrate on, okay, what makes me the greatest hockey player of all time? Like, what do I need to do here? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Entrepreneurs are like that. You need to consistently keep honing your skills. I can teach you anything you want to learn about business, but I can't I can't teach you how to deal with a punch in the face. <laughs> you know, this is something you have to learn. Right. But that's really about your support system, your network, the way you balance your life. It's all those things. You know, people think, well, there's one thing that's going to kill your business. It's the financial part. No, there's a hundred different things that can kill your business, finance being one of them. But you can hire an accountant. And I've hired some good accountants, so I I know about them. Legal stuff will tie up. Well, you can hire a good lawyer. But you can't hire somebody to invent your products. You can't hire somebody who's going to put in the work that needs to be done to grow this this business. You can hire a good team around you Mm -hmm. and you can empower them to make good decisions and stuff. But as an entrepreneur, you still have to do that work. That's what a lot of people don't realize, the sheer amount of work and effort that has to go into a business. But it's not about working 24 hours a day. I hear it all the time. Oh, you just got to work those 80 hour weeks and stuff like this. Most of the people I know that have tried to do that have burned out. And fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can only sustain that for so long. I think the secret for me is to running my businesses as my kids were growing up. I made sure I was at every hockey practice, that I was at every baseball practice, that I was coaching my daughter's volleyball team. I was doing all those things because if I didn't do them, I would be worse off Mm -hmm. because I had no support system. That's my support system, my family, my friends, you know, that so, there's that whole mental health side of things that you often don't hear about in entrepreneurship, but it's a super important part of building a viable business, I think. Yeah. Um, I've tried to take that approach, and uh, by all means, uh, my life is not perfect. I make lots of mistakes, but every time I make a mistake, I try and correct it, I try and improve for the next time because it's going to come around again. And sometimes I actually think having entrepreneurs make those mistakes is valuable. Back, right to your point, that failure is is a good thing. Um, it doesn't kill you, <laughs> hopefully, um, but it, it, it's something that we should be not celebrating but recognizing and learning from.
0: Yeah, and not being disdainful of Mm-mm. failure is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: No, no, not at all. I've learned more from failure than I think anything has taught me. Like, you know, I, I value my education. I value the, the schools I went to and all that. But really what it came down to was making a few mistakes and then saying, oh, I'm not going to do that ever again. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes you, you have to go through that to, to recognize those things. And, and again, back to the sports analogy, you know, as a goalie in hockey you're on a thin line because there's another guy sitting on the bench that wants your spot. So you're under a lot of pressure to perform. And it's no different than having competitors in industry waiting mm-hmm. on the sidelines. But as a goalie, if you make a, a few mistakes, usually a coach will let you get away with one mistake or maybe two. But third strike, you're out, right? Mm-hmm. And then that other goalie comes in. And you go to the bench, and then you're thinking, "I hope he doesn't do well." <laughs> and, and it's just human it's human nature yeah. because I want back in the game, uh-huh. and he's the one is is in control right now. Because if he does well, the coach is not going to put me back in. So that whole mindset, as I was going through that hockey channel, it really taught me to okay, I'm going to take a step back, and I'm not going to hope that this guy fails. I'm going to sit back on the bench and I'm going to be a good teammate and I'm going to say, listen, go get him." Like, I hope you do really well. I'm going to work on my failures here and try and get better and try and get back in there. But when I was a young player, I would put too much on the other player, the other goalie that went in, I'd, I'd do that. So I, I really changed my mind, the way my mind works. And that was back when I was like 16. And I always think of that now when I'm around competitor companies or, or, or people that are competing in some way or another with me, I, I'm now rooting for them. And I think that's, that's been my approach. And that's why I coach entrepreneurs. And that's why I, I celebrate these companies that are doing great things. But I also recognize that they're going to fall on their face. And I need to help them kind of get through that. I think we need to do more celebrating. And, and more recognition of the great things that are happening in these rural communities. Uh, there's some great entrepreneurs, there's some great companies, but we're very quiet. We tend not to shout about all the good things that are happening here. But if there's something negative, we hear about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, sure do. And we need to do a better job, myself included, about celebration. And bring everybody into the mix when you celebrate. If we're celebrating a success of one of the companies at Ignite, everybody's celebrating. That's right. Including the competitors. <laughs> you yeah. Know?
0: If you want to find out more about rural innovation and what Ignite does, check out igniteatlantic.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you subscribed to Ignite, shared us with your friends and gave us a good review. And we'd love to hear from you. Any comments or suggestions about the podcast or who you'd like to hear on it are most welcome. Our website is igniteatlantic.com. My email is wade, W-A-D-E, at igniteatlantic.com. If you want to hear some more with Doug about what Ignite is up to in 2023, plus a few more tidbits, check out the bonus episode with Doug where you found this podcast. I'm Wade Cleveland. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk again soon.